way back a long time ago when dinosaurs were on the earth and I was in college, I went to a Christian college, Wheaton College, there was a guy, I'll call him Dave. Dave was from one of the southern states, which at Wheaton made him an odd duck. In the warmer months, which was really only the first two weeks of school, uh, Dave would have on penny loafers with no socks, khaki shorts that were perfectly creased, and shirts that were perfectly pressed. He was one of like maybe two or three people on campus who actually sent their laundry out to the laundry cleaners to be pressed and cleaned. I mean, he was just totally always put together. And Dave was, he was full of himself, okay? Let's just, you know, it's church, I'm going to be honest, because I'm talking about Dave, it's okay to talk about Dave, okay? Dave was full of himself. I mean, he would do that kind of thing. He would come up to you and put his arm around you, and he would ask you how you were doing, but really it was so that he could tell you whatever was important to him. He was just so big. Uh, Freshman year, he was the president of our class. Sophomore year, he was the president of our class. Junior year, he was the vice president of student government. And senior year, he was running to become president of student government. He was a shoe-in, because why? He was always elected. It's just... But apparently, I was not the only one who was rubbed the wrong way by Dave. Apparently, other people at Wheaton felt that Dave was just a little too full of himself. Dave was just a little too cocky. Dave was just a little too arrogant. And there was a guy, this geeky guy from Minnesota named Leif. Talk about naming your son a name. There's a good, strong Scandinavian name, Leif. So they sent Leif to Wheaton College. And Leif was this geeky, pale, pasty white guy from Minnesota who had never done anything in student government. But he went to all the campus leaders and got their endorsements. He sat down and listened to people. And when the election happened, guess who won? Leif by a landslide. It was like the Reagan revolution, okay? (laughs) Smoked poor Dave. Dave had his tail between his legs the whole fall semester. I mean, it was, and the thing is, he was clueless. I mean, he totally missed that it was his own arrogance and kind of I'm better than you attitude that hosed him in getting the presidency of student government. He just, you know people who are clueless, don't you? It's the coworker who gossips about the boss to you and everyone else in the office, everyone else on duty. And then when they're with the boss, guess what? They're talking about you and everybody else and you know it and everybody else knows it. And so no one trusts them with anything, but they're clueless. They are totally clueless that they're considered not trustworthy. It's, it's the family member who has to have everything just so, and they give you the size and the disapproving looks and glances. Why? Because you're not doing it right. You're not measuring up. And they don't understand why no one calls, why why they don't get invited to the party. Hey, we're all going out. And oh, yeah, you can come along. (laughs) And they don't understand. They're, They're clueless. It's the friend who buys a new wardrobe every season They buy it in spring, they buy it in summer, they buy it in fall, and they're buy, 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 and they've got so many shoes. Imelda Marcos never had as many shoes as they have. And they don't understand that they're buying it because they're trying to fill this emptiness inside because they still don't have somebody, but by golly, they're going to have the perfect outfit. 
You see it, their sister sees it, everybody sees it, but they don't see it. They don't see that the shopping is just an, a, a, a thing, a symptom. They're totally unaware. How can people be so clueless? Seriously. I mean, have you ever thought about it? How can, how can an individual be so unaware of something so big that it's tripping them up in life? I have a word for it. Sin. Sin is that nasty, that pervasive, that under the radar, that it can totally trip you up and you're not even aware that it's that big of a problem. When pastors today talk about sin, generally people will nod in agreement, yes, yes, pastor. They'll put on the godly voice, yes, pastor. There's a lot of sin out there. By golly, I watch TV only once a week, but by golly, that's terrible what's on TV these days. And have you read the newspapers? I can't believe our politicians, they can't even agree to pass a budget so to pay people to do their jobs and Let's not even talk about Charlie Sheen. Come on, if somebody was messed up, doesn't he qualify in the category messed up? Okay. It's easy to look out there and go, man, she's messed up. He's messed up. They're so messed up. It's a messed up world. We can all agree the world is not as it should be. It's messed up out there. But the problem is when any pastor starts to talk about my sin or your sin, whoa, now wait a minute. Because really, if you think about it, isn't this, this is how I tend to, to, to handle sin in my life. This is my default setting, and I get it honestly. Um, the Bible says I'm inclined to think this way. I tend to think that my sin really isn't that big a deal, because here's why. I mean, for crying out loud, I grew up in the home that I grew up in. I have issues. I'm still working on some of them. Thank you very much. And I'm trying. It's not like I don't try. I'm a pastor. I try to be good and holy and that kind of stuff. And I mean, for crying out loud, and, and God, why can't you, you know, I'm not perfect. Jenny knows I'm not perfect. Don't you know I'm not perfect, God? Come on, cut me a break here. I'm not as bad as, I mean, clearly they need help, okay? Not just, I mean, they, and probably a $100 an hour therapist. I'm not that bad. And so my tendency is to think that the issues that dog me, the, the sin things going in my life are really not that big a deal because in, in the world, there's two kinds of people. There's good people and bad people, and I'm a good person. Aren't you a good person? I mean, and, you know, it's not like you look in the mirror, I'm bad. <laughs> and usually, you know, some of us do, and that, you know, it does happen, but most of us tend to go, well, I'm one of the good guys. I have a, I have a hat on. But according to the Bible, sin is actually a big deal, and it's a much bigger deal than we give it credit for. Um, and so, Over the next several weeks, I want to talk about the gospel. But in order to talk about the gospel, I have to talk about sin. Because you can't understand the gospel. You can't understand the good news. And that's what that word in English actually means. If you've never heard this before, let me explain it. Gospel comes from a Greek word, euangelion, which means literally good news. These early Christians in the first century would go from town to town to tell people the good news. And many of them were killed. They were driven out of town. They were beaten for this good news that they were wanting everybody to hear about. In fact, today in parts of Asia and North America, or North Africa, sorry, in Asia and North Africa, there are still people who are beaten and tortured and run out of town because they're, they're talking about this good news. Well, what is this good news? In order to understand it, we have to talk about sin first. Um, and so Paul, uh, if you've never read the book of Romans, I would encourage you to read it uh, this month. This would be a great month to read the book of Romans. 
that's where we're going to be over the next several weeks. And today we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 18. The book of Romans is really a big, long sermon on the gospel. It's Paul, this apostle, who went out and told everybody the good news. And so in this book, in this letter, he's simply writing out a long sermon of, here's the gospel. And the first three chapters of this lengthy sermon is all about sin and God's wrath. So let's just get right into it, okay? Verse 18. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You and I, according to Paul and according to the Bible, were made to love God, to worship God, and yet, just like Evan Baxter, every single person, Adam and Eve, every person who has ever walked, you, I, everybody, your cousin, your, your Uncle Bill, we've all said no. We've all said no to God. At one point or another, we've said no. In big ways, in small ways, we've said no. And we've gone our own way. We've rebelled. And Paul is, is mapping this out, and he says, you know what? This is actually not good. I mean, if you think about this, the guy who made everything, the all-powerful God, and we're saying no and going our way. I don't think this has a good ending. I don't think this is going to, I don't think this is going to end well. I have a bad feeling about this. And so he's talking, using language of wrath and, and wickedness, okay? Verse 19, they know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Even though you can't see God with your eyes, you can see the world he's made. And Paul is saying, you know what? Any reasonable person looking at that would go, yep, there's a God and he's pretty powerful, a lot more powerful than I am. And, and, and so Paul is saying, you can't claim ignorance. Um, and so if God is really God and he's all-powerful, shouldn't God have a right to tell us how to live? And Paul would say, well, of course he should, if he's God and all-powerful and made you and me and everything else. But he goes on in verses 21 and 22. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. And in these two verses, he's saying it's possible, it's entirely possible to be unaware of your sin and your sinfulness. It's entirely possible to be doing something and be convinced it's the right thing to do, it's the helpful thing to do, and actually be wrong about it. This, to me, is an amazing claim in the Bible. It's possible to, be, to, to do something believing it's right and be completely wrong about it. And, and, he, and he says, uh, uh, in, uh, claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Um, instead of being a source of light, we've allowed our hearts to become dark. Uh, instead of moving toward God, every person who's ever lived has moved away from God. And if you think about it, we use our God-given abilities to do some very crazy things. I mean, think of the guy who contemplates murdering his wife, and he, and he maps out how he's going to do it, how he's going to dispose of the body, how he's going to get off scot-free. Think of the creativity, the intellectual prowess, and everything else that's involved in something that dark and despicable. And yet, there it is, Paul says, okay? But he goes on, and he says... Uh, 
One example of how bad it is is verse 23. Instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, you and I today would go back looking at them and we would chuckle and go, ha, ha, aren't people silly? Aren't they silly? I mean, come on. You know, oh, music stand, I bow before thee, I'm not worthy. I mean, come on, that's crazy, crazy talk. Who's going to worship a carved image? In a, you know, that's like, you know, pfft. that's not even civilization. And we would make fun of them. And yet... The Bible says anything really that takes the place of God is an idol. And, and how many of us today in our society, we worship wealth or, or success and, and we give our whole life to maybe being the most beautiful person that we can or any number of things along those lines. And, and so in, in 3,500 years of recorded human history, we're not that much different. And so... Paul, by way of summary of these just few short, short verses, he's saying, look, everybody sinned. It's messed up with our think. It's messed up our thinking. It's messed up our hearts. And we're not even worshiping God anymore. Hello, we're all in trouble. This is bad. This is going to end badly. And then he lists off some particular sins in verse 28 and 29 and following. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and disobey their parents. This is really encouraging, isn't it? But let me pause for a moment and let me ask you a question. If this described your family, full of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip, would you want to be in that family? If this described everybody who lived in the town that you lived in, would you want to live in that town? No. See, God's ways are actually a better way to live. Paul makes a very strong case for this. And it's actually crazy that we would allow sin to take us where sin takes us, okay? Uh, what Paul would say is this list here, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, insolent, proud, boastful, this is what happens when God says, okay, do things your way. And when we do things our way, that's the net result, Paul says, okay? And in verse 32, here's the kicker. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do so. Um, let me present another hypothetical. Let's say you were to go into prison and you were, in, you were to talk to an inmate and sit one-on-one -on -one across from him or her, and they would say, you know what? 15 years ago, I killed a man. I was angry. It was, it was in the heat of the moment. It was a wicked thing. It was a horrible thing that I would take a human life like that. And I can't go back. I can't change it, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done it. Let's say that the very next day you could sit down with another inmate and, and who's also committed something, you know, we would consider a big deal crime, murder, okay? And they start talking to you and they say this. Well, you know... My uncle was a wretched man. He deserved to die. Are you kidding me? I did everybody in my family a favor by snuffing out the light on that turkey. 
In fact, I don't even know why I'm in here. The judge should have thanked me, not sent me to prison. Whose world would you rather live in? Inmate number two with no remorse or inmate number one who at least has an awareness of what's wrong and is sorry for the wrong? I'll take curtain number one, Monty. I mean, there you go. And so I want to go back for a moment to this word that was in verse 18 at the very beginning. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people. A lot of times in, in culture... Uh, and out there, and maybe even you've wondered this, when you see the word wrath or God's anger, you tend to think of it as something that's capricious or malevolent or something like out of a movie where, where somebody in the heat of emotion loses their temper and they go full throttle on somebody and, you know, raw, and that's wrath. That's not what Paul has in mind when he uses that word here, and that's not how he uses it in this book. In fact, in the second chapter of Romans, Paul makes a very strong case and he says, you know what, God is actually patient. He's actually a kind God. I mean, if you think of somebody as being all-powerful, could do anything they want to do, boy, it's amazing how kind God is when you think of how powerful he really is and what he could do and what he doesn't do. God's amazingly kind. He's forbearing, he's patient, he's slow to anger. In actuality. So what is this anger thing? If you think about it, at the end of the day, when somebody's being uh, brutally tortured or raped or all the worst things that go on in our humanity, for God to turn away and to say, you know what, that's okay, it's not that bad. That's not a good solution, is it? You and I would demand justice at the end of the day. It's not a good solution. And so God's wrath is actually the right and appropriate thing when things are not the way they're supposed to be, when the world is run amok, okay? I want to pose a couple of questions, and I want to flesh out why this is important to talk about sin, all right? Here's the first question. When it comes to your sin, the sin in your life, are you like me? Do you have a tendency to kind of gloss over it? Do you tend to think of yourself as one of the good guys wearing the the white hats Um, when you're having conversations and towing things out with God? Surely does he not understand you're just not perfect? Here's my second question. Have you ever, has there ever been a time in your life when you've said or acknowledged, I have sinned, I am a sinner, I need a savior? Here's why this is important. I don't think you can understand the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ without understanding sin and how bad and big and and absolutely unsurmountable sin is on its own by ourselves. Um, You and I know this relationally uh, in our family units. If you grew up with a dad who was an alcoholic or a dad who would up and abandon you every so many months, and he would come back and he would say, you know what, I'm sorry, daddy's sorry. Would you forgive? Would you forgive, Daddy? I'll never do it again. I will never touch that bottle. I'm so sorry, honey. Forgive me. Okay. Early on, you forgive, don't you? I mean, for crying out loud, he's look at him. He's sorry. But didn't there come a point in time at which sorry was no longer good enough? Didn't there come a point in time when walking away and abandoning was no longer cutting it? Didn't there come a point in time where, no, 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 I'm sorry, Dad, yes, I I can accept your apology, but you need to change. 
You need to not do this anymore. Is it crazy that God would, in essence, operate on a similar, uh, on a similar plane? Here's, here's why this is important for us. Um, often when I'm out in the community uh, at a chamber event or whatnot, somebody will say to me, uh, you know, hey, well, I'm Max. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, you're a pastor. And it's weird. In the business community, I will always get, nine times out of ten, I'll get some version of this. Oh, well, you know, you're in sales, aren't you? I mean, sort of. I mean, you're selling God. They do. They say that. And they mean well when they say it. They really do. They're, they're just trying to make a connection. It's weird to interface with a pastor, I guess. Okay. So, you know, but you're selling God. And you know what? Every time they say that on the inside, I'm just screaming because I'm like, no, this is not how it works. Sin is big deal. No, 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 no. It's not like a shopping cart. Honey, I got the Disney video. Do you got God in the cart? Okay, let's go. Let's go. Check out three. Boom. Okay. God is not something you can put in the cart. You don't shop for God. I'm not selling something that people can add to their thing and get a better self-esteem and live a happier life, so to speak. What I'm engaged in is more or less like the Coast Guard. You see, a ship has gone down in the ocean and the water is very cold, and there are people, and they have no life jackets, and they're either going to get hypothermia and die, or they're going to drown. And I'm on one of these giant, you know, whatever Coast Guard thing, and we've dropped the line, and we're shouting, grab the line, grab the line. That's why this is important. See, you have people in your family who are in the water, You know people at your job. You know people on your kid's sports team. They're in the water. You feel the weight of it when you get them to come to church. Remember this, any Sunday you get one of your friends to darken the doors to church. They haven't been to church forever and a day. You want people to be friendly. You want everything to be on that Sunday, don't you? Why? Because you know something really big is at stake. It's at stake every day because there are people in the water. That's what Paul talks about in this book of Romans. He says, it's life and death. Sin is death. It always leads to death. And the only solution is grabbing hold of the line. The only solution is the gospel. Okay? That's why I, you know, in a sense, that's why I gave up a paying job seven years ago. That's why I'm willing to set up and tear down a church because I know there's people in my community who are in the water. And I know, and they have all these reasons why they shouldn't grab the line because they have these misperceptions about God and who God's like. And so they're debating, they're in the water. And the thing is, you can only tread water so long, can't you? Okay, I have a word for those of you that are Christians and and you said yes to God a long time ago. I want to remind you of something that's true. You may have gotten weary in your walk recently or in the past few years, maybe you've gotten a little weary. Maybe things have gotten a little dry. I want to remind you of something that's true. You were not crazy to grab that line when you did. And think about it. I know sometimes a helicopter can roll around and the basket's swirling. You're like, this is no fun. Listen, being in the water is no fun. You were not crazy to grab that line. You weren't. And so in talking about the gospel, you and I have to realize that it's not just that we're mistakers. It's not just that, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, God, I'm sorry. It's not, I'm going to try harder. There's no trying harder enough. You and I need something external other than ourselves to get us out of the mess that we're in. And that's 
the case that Paul makes in the book of Romans. And here's your homework assignment for this week. I want you to dust off your Bible, okay? Get re- you know, Romans is in the New Testament. I'll give you a hint. It's in the New Testament. I want you to read Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. Read Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3 this week. And if any part of it strikes you as odd, crazy, weird, not making sense, call me. Call Isaiah. Call James. Call anybody. And let's have a conversation. Don't do it on Facebook because people, you know, you can't have a real conversation on Facebook. But call us and we'll, we'll, we'll talk one-on-one. We'll talk in groups. But it's important to understand that uh, we're sinners. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And that's not such a bad thing because there is a Savior. There's somebody offering a line in the water. I want to